Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, when Katie Porter ran for Congress in 2018, she says she was acutely aware of her shortcomings, that she was a Democrat in Republican Orange County, that she'd never parachuted into combat and even hated apple pie. But above all, she explains in her new memoir, she was far from rich, which came to set her apart from her colleagues in the House, where she says, quote, the privilege of wealth divides ruthlessly. We'll find out how Porter came to see being a single mom of three young kids as an asset in Congress, along with her experience as a consumer protection attorney. And we'll find out why she's running to be California's next senator. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I swear, politics is messier than my minivan. That's the title of Katie Porter's new memoir, which is as cheeky and frank as the title suggests, sometimes even skewering her fellow Democrats. And you may have come to expect nothing less from the whiteboard-wielding Congress member from Orange County, known for exposing the hypocrisy of corporate CEOs during hearings. Porter flipped a Republican district in 2018 and earlier this year announced she's running for Dianne Feinstein Senate seat. Congress member Katie Porter joins me now. Welcome to Forum. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you. So I had no idea until I read your book that whiteboard could be a verb. <laughs> it's a verb among you and your staff to whiteboard someone. So so what does that mean exactly to whiteboard someone? Well, I think what we're referring to is whether we're actually using a whiteboard or maybe some other proper tool, um, really trying to hold people to account. And so when we say we're going to whiteboard somebody, we mean we're going to really lay out the case for what they need to be held to account for. And we're going to ask the question and set the question up in a way that actually gets an answer. And frankly, that's altogether too rare in congressional hearings. Rare in congressional hearings, how did you come to realize that a whiteboard could be an effective tool, an effective prop of all things? Before running for Congress, I was a professor, and um, before that I taught eighth grade. And so often when a student wasn't 
following along, when the class was getting a little lost, you would use the whiteboard to lay out the facts to make the sort of issue at hand clear. And you do that in part because often as a teacher, you would ask a great question only to have the student say, I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? And these corporate witnesses in Congress are coached by incredibly expensive and very talented lobbyists and lawyers. And they're coached to stall, to delay, um, to ask things like repeating the question, and it makes it hard to get real answers. And so part of the goal of the whiteboard is to help the witness stay on track so they can't worm away, but also to help the American people understand what I'm asking. So I'm asking about why it's hard for employees to make ends meet on the salary that you pay them. I'm asking a CEO that question, or I'm asking a government official why they won't make COVID testing free given the costs. And so I think a lot of us are very busy in our days. We may we have a few minutes here or there to catch up on what's happening in Washington and whether our representatives are fighting for us. So the whiteboard's a tool to make it easier for people to see what I'm doing in Congress and what questions I'm asking on their behalf. So how is this desire to hold people to account, which you say is far too rare, to be able to take these moments and hearings to educate the American public, is it connected to your desire to be in the Senate, why you want to be a senator? It's definitely true that in the Senate, you get to serve on twice as many committees. You have a larger staff. You have a broader reach of policy issues you work on. So I think twice as many opportunities to whiteboard those in power who need to be held to account. But I think in general, in both the House and the Senate, oversight is one of the most important responsibilities we have. And we often don't do it. And when I think about oversight, I think about being a watchdog for consumers, for employees, for um, taxpayers. I think about trying to close the gap between what politicians announce at a press conference that they've accomplished and then what really happens in people's lives. And when I got to Congress um, four and a half years ago, it really surprised me that not everybody was as committed to oversight as I was. But I think when you look under the hood of our government at the campaign contributions, at the lobbyist donations, at the fact-finding trips to the French Riviera, you understand that there are too many elected officials who are who are whose um, priorities are being shaped by their donors and by institutional forces in Washington, rather than being focused on what families need from them. You also give a reason about running for Congress in your book that is about power. You write, I decided to run for Congress to get power. That is the naked truth about why everyone decides to run for Congress. They want power. The question we should be asking every candidate every day is what they will do with the power. So I guess I I should ask you that. What will you do with that power? What do you think needs to be Congress's highest priority right now? I think we need to rebuild trust in, com in Congress and in our government institutions. And we do that by being willing to stand up to special interests and to reshape Washington so it works better for the families and the voters who send us there. The power of special interests in Washington is at an all-time high. And while Republicans 
certainly bear a lot of responsibility for that. It's also true that Democrats, many of them, take corporate donations um, and are, I think, too wedded to what lobbyists for corporations want and not closely enough tied to what American people want. So I'm proud to have been a champion for consumers before I ran for Congress, and I have continued in Congress to stand up for consumers, for employees, um, for taxpayers. That's who I think about fighting for. We're talking with Orange County Congress member Katie Porter, and you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What would you like to ask Congressmember Porter about her priorities in the House, about what she would want to accomplish as California senator? You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Or you can give us a call at 866-733-6786, Well, I do want to ask you, um, Representative Porter, just about some of your thoughts on on recent headlines, one, of course, being that the Supreme Court agreed to let the abortion drug Mifepristone remain on the market temporarily uh, by agreeing to stay a decision by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that basically upheld in part a ban uh, of Mifepristone in the U.S. The impacts of the ban would be enormous, as I'm sure you know, and and you ran as uh, a self-described pro-choice Democrat. Many experts predict that this decision about whether or not to allow Mifepristone will ultimately fall to the Supreme Court, which of course overruled Roe v. Wade. So I'm wondering what you think Congress should do about it. What is Congress's role in this? Congress absolutely can and must pass a federal law to protect the right for every American to make their own decision about when and if to start a family. It is true that the Supreme Court used to give us that right um, through the Roe versus Wade decision. With Dobbs, what the Supreme Court said is there's no constitutional protection for having an abortion, but that doesn't stop Congress from passing and creating one. And so last Congress, the House passed the Women's Patient Protection Act. That went over to the Senate where it was not taken up and not voted on. I think we need to expect more of our Senate. I think the rights, the freedoms, um, that the principles that are on the, on the line right now demand a Senate that step up and to protect people's rights. Is there anything that you specifically have been trying to do to make that happen? One of the most important things we have to emphasize here is that this attack on Mifepristone is also an attack on science-based policy. The job of the FDA is not to decide whether a patient should or should not choose to use a drug. Think about the cancer patient who may or may not choose another round of chemo. Um, That's a choice that's up to them. The, The goal of the FDA is simply to decide whether, based on the science, the drug is safe. And that's exactly what the FDA did in approving mifepristone. And so what we see here in this decision is an effort to throw aside safety, to throw aside science, to attack those principles, and to substitute them with an effort to control women's bodies. Yes, that is the broader context uh, of what is happening. But to be able to enshrine some kind of a right to an abortion, that is uh, a very difficult task. And, you know, just really wondering what tools are available in terms of a legislative fix, given the kinds of stalemates that we're seeing. 
In the Senate, it's pretty clear that we're going to need to rethink and eliminate the filibuster so that we don't have senators mm -hmm. hiding behind the filibuster to avoid taking votes on where they stand on our most fundamental freedoms. The American people support the right of each person to make their own decision about whether to have an abortion in consultation with a partner, a doctor, a family member, and that is, that is where the American people are. And so what we've seen here is the far right at the, near the tail end of a 30, 40 year war on reproductive freedom. And so I think the answer here is that we all need to make this a top issue on the ballot box. We need to elect people who will not just support a right for an abortion, but will reform our Senate, will challenge institutional power in Washington so that our Senate actually stands up and takes the votes on the issues, on the protection, on the freedoms that are most sacred to us. Well, speaking of the Senate and the filibuster, the other big headline I wanted to ask you about was how Senator Dianne Feinstein said on Wednesday that she'd ask and at Democrats to replace her on the Judiciary Committee while she recovers from shingles so that they can continue to do their work and confirm Biden's justices. Meanwhile, your colleague, South Bay Congress member Ro Khanna, has called for her resignation I'm wondering, do you think Dianne Feinstein should step down ahead of the end of her term, given the fact that there are some real questions about whether or not that replacement would be allowed to go forward smoothly? The people of California elected Senator Feinstein. They sent her there um, to serve out her term. And so it's Senator Feinstein's decision on whether she believes that she needs to step down um, because of her health. And um, I, you know, I'm, she's reportedly suffering from um, shingles and the after effect of shingles, which can be very painful. And so I think we all should be hoping that she makes a speedy recovery. And I think we all should have expectations that um, Chuck Schumer, as leader of the Senate, will come up with a solution to allow the Senate judiciary to go forward. President Biden has been incredibly successful at appointing judges. Um, he didn't wait around. He got started on this right away, and he has reshaped our judiciary in a way that I think is going to be incredibly important for years to come in making the judiciary um, have people in it whose life experiences, whose perspectives, whose careers reflect the full diversity of justice issues in their country. So I I do think it's important we move forward, but I think we should let Senator Schumer try to find the path to do that if Senator Feinstein, um, as she's requested, wants a break from the Judiciary Committee while she, while she heals. Would you be concerned if she stepped down in the role of selecting her replacement senator went to Governor Newsom? Well, that's the way the law works. Governor Newsom's job is to fill vacancies. That's what he did when Senator Harris was, Kamala Harris was elected vice president, is he filled the vacancy with our now California Senator, Alex Padilla. I do think that ultimately it's very important that voters have the ability to choose California's next senator. And so I think I intend to stay in this race to continue to run a strong campaign to engage voters on the issues that are most important to them, things like bringing down the cost of housing for California, cleaning up corruption in Washington, growing the green energy economy in California to create high-paying jobs and withstand climate change. So I'm going to stay in this race regardless of how Senator Feinstein mm. uh, makes her decisions. Katie Porter, more with her after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Tomorrow we'll be talking about bees. Bees can count to four, play soccer, feel pain, according to Stephen Buckman, who has studied bees for more than four decades. California's fruits, vegetables, nuts, they wouldn't exist without bees. So we'll talk to Buckman about his new book, What a Bee Knows. Today we're talking with Orange County Congressmember Katie Porter, consumer protection advocate, former law professor, single mom of three, about her first years in Congress. She's got a new memoir called I Swear Politics is Messier Than My Minivan. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your questions for the Orange County Congress member. You can tweet them at KQED Forum. Find us on Facebook or Instagram. You can call us 866-733-6786. And you can email forum at kqed.org. And this listener tweets, I already love Representative Porter. She makes me want to watch the daily congressional hearings and discussions. Uh, let's go next to Ken in San Mateo. Hi, Ken. Hey, good morning. Uh, Congresswoman Porter, I strongly support your bid for Dianne Feinstein's uh, position. I want you to know that I just love watching you hold CEOs' feet to the fire and hold them accountable for what you do. And I think you represent Congress 3.0. And I fully support you, and I hope you win. Thanks, Ken. Let me go next to Nadine in San Anselmo. Hi, Nadine. You're on. Hi. Can you hear me okay? I can. Great. Well, first of all, I just need to start off by saying I'm a big supporter of um, the Katie Porter, and I worked on her primary election and also on her general in the new redistricted district that she was on, and I encouraged friends to postcard. I needed to preface that because I want to say I don't know why you're running for senator. <laughs> you know, I, I, I really wish you'd rethink this. I think the way the numbers are right now in Congress and the Senate in the United States, we need you more in the House. <laughs> And it might not be comfortable in the House, but I think in the district that you're in now, maybe you can share something. But, you know, I don't think you won by a huge amount, as I recall. It turned out to be better than it started as. But I'm just concerned. We don't want that seat going the way of the Central Valley seats. You know, we don't want to lose more uh, Congress people, number one. And number two, I think um, to those voters who didn't know you and, and voted for you, I think it's a little disrespectful to not really hang in there with all you've got for a couple of terms. So, um, uh, having heard Nadine, that, thanks. Yeah, I let know. me give the Congress member a chance to respond. I, I imagine, especially that earlier concern that Nadine was saying. We also have a listener, for example, who writes, "I'm a big supporter, but I'm concerned about Katie's district. It's a competitive district, and I would hate to see it flip red." I imagine you've heard those concerns, and that Nadine's not alone. How do you respond? 
Part of the reason that I'm running for the Senate is I think California needs a political leader who knows how to win tough races. We need people at the top of the ticket in this race in 2024, but also for years to come who knows who know what it takes to talk across party lines, to win over the Republicans that we can, to bring independents into voting because they share our values, even if they're sometimes skeptical about whether or not Democrats fight for them. So I think I'm the candidate in this race who knows how to win tough races. And that's something that as senator, I can help not just help us keep winning in Orange County, but also to win those races in the Central Valley where we've struggled, to win back some of the seats that we have lost. There is no path to the Democrats having a durable majority in the House of Representatives that does not involve us performing better in California than we have. And so I think a big part of what I can contribute as a senator is I have a track record of no knowing how to pull in and engage every single voter and to outperform other Democrats. And we saw that in my own race, actually. Um, this this fall in uh, 2022, um, I was the highest performing Democrat on the ticket. I outperformed you know, all of our statewide officials and all of our local officials. And that is the kind of a capacity to cross party lines, to win people over without ever compromising California's values that I think we need our political leaders to have. I am very committed to making sure that the area that I currently represent in Orange County continues to be represented by a Democrat who shares our values. I have already endorsed State Senator Dave Min in the race, and I will do everything I can to make sure that Dave wins. I, I live in Orange County. My kids are growing up in Irvine. I absolutely am going to fight hard to make sure that we continue to have that representative. Dave represents about 80% of the district already. He's very, very well situated to be elected to Congress because these people have always already chosen him to be their state senator. Um, so you can count on me to bring the very fight and work in collaboration with wonderful folks who who helped and postcarded and knocked doors like Nadine. I want to say thank you to you. We're going to keep that work up. And as senator, I'm going to be able to help us take the lessons of Orange County and export them throughout California and frankly, into every part and pocket of this country. Thanks, Nadine. The L.A. Times reported yesterday that, uh, according to federal campaign finance documents released on Saturday, that your colleague, Congressmember Adam Schiff, has raised millions of dollars more than you. I think that he's got about a $14 million advantage. It's early, of course, but but that was one of the things that came out in the report. But uh, I want to bring this up because there is a question about how concerned folks should be about your ability to catch up, to raise the resources needed in a state like California, where it is expensive to run a Senate campaign. My campaign raised four and a half million dollars in its first quarter, and that is more than vulnerable Senate incumbents like Sherrod Brown, who in Ohio faces one of the toughest races in the country. It's more than some of the top raisers um, in the Senate last cycle, like John Fetterman raised. So $4.5 million is a lot of money. It will go a long ways to communicating with voters. And last, I think I have a proven track record of being a fundraiser. And in fact, last Congress, I was is the highest Democratic fundraiser in the House. 
the highest. So I have a fundraising capacity. It is going to take time for me to catch and close the gap created by last Congress, my raising money to win my race. I didn't ask for money to bank it, to set it aside, to help myself to hire office. When I asked for money last cycle, I used it to try to hold the house. And so I had a competitive race. My colleagues, um, Adam Schiff, Barbara Lee, did not have competitive races. So they come into this with a different set of resources that I do. But I also have a very strong proven track record of raising resources. I was the highest fundraiser in the house. Nobody should doubt that I will have the resources resources down the stretch to win this race. <laughs> Congressmember Katie Porter is with us today, and so are you, our listeners. Let me go next to Frank in San Jose. And again, you can join by calling 866-733-6786. The lines are full, but keep trying. Frank, you're on. Go right ahead. <clears throat> Hi, uh, Katie. It's an honor to speak with you. Uh, I'm a lifelong Democrat, um, 71 years old, and I know there's a lot of issues that are rooted in two things. That when you said before that people have people, Americans distrust our system in so many ways, our political system, I think across the parties, Republican, Independent and Democrat, the two systems that are most unfair in this country, in my mind, in a lot of people's mind, are the tax system and the campaign finance system. I would love it if you would encourage your Democratic colleagues to come out for a uniform platform that explains how you would reform the tax system, how you re reform the campaign finance system to make it fairer. And I would suggest you hold hearings with key economists across the world and even countries from other parts of the world who have fair tax systems and fair campaign finance systems. Thank you. Uh, Frank, thanks. <laughs> Congressmember Porter, your thoughts on what Frank is suggesting here? I absolutely agree with Frank that addressing the deep unfairness in the campaign finance system and the tax system is a critically important part of not just rebuilding trust in government, but making government actually deliver for the people. The reality is that both the tax system and the campaign finance system are too often controlled by the nation's largest corporations who are focusing on their profits and the bottom lines for their executives and shareholders rather than what's best for our entire economy. I am the only candidate in this race for Senate who has never taken corporate PAC money. I am the candidate who does not take federal lobbyist contributions. You just can't have people trust that you're gonna put their interests first at a congressional hearing at 10 a.m. in the morning if the night before you were sipping wine, eating cheese cubes, and collecting a fat check from a lobbyist. So I think Democrats, have the ability, notwithstanding the terrible decision in Citizens United, Democrats have the ability to set norms and expectations around how we raise resources, who do we fight for, who do we listen to. And once we're working for the people because we clean up the campaign finance system, I think you will start to see different decisions with regard to taxes. I was proud to fight to make sure that our tax system audits those who are most likely to cheat the system, which is the ultra rich. That's who's most likely to fail to pay their taxes. And we can simply we simply collect all the money that is owed. We can actually dramatically ha uh, reduce the deficit and have more money for the programs and, and priorities that we have. Money and power and how they're entangled is definitely one of the overarching themes of your memoir. And, and I do want to explore that a little bit. You say that in the House of Representatives, the privilege of wealth divides ruthlessly. Give us an example of what you mean. 
When I ran for Congress, I thought of us all as being equal. We are the 435 of us. It's a large body. We all have the same title, Congress member. And what I discovered is that those of us who come from, the people who come from wealthy backgrounds, who have a lot of resources, lead very different lives in Congress. They buy penthouses, um, they move their families, their wives fly back and forth with them. Um, it's a very, very different lifestyle than those of us who for, for whom this work is a job to provide for our family as well as an honor. Um, and so, you know, I would have people say things like, you know, you should, you should fly your kids um, out here for the, the White House picnic. It costs hundreds of dollars to buy plane tickets from California to the White House. And so I think there's definitely a, a class of people for whom the wealth really shapes how they think about the experience of Congress, but also the policies that they fight for. So, you know, I'm very acutely, when we were dealing with food inflation, which is still a problem, whether it's eggs or bacon or any other food, I, I see that because I'm the one in the grocery store. I'm the one seeing my grocery bill go up and trying to figure out what to do about it. And I think that's why representation matters. It's why it matters to have a single mom um, in Congress because you know I, I drive this minivan. Um, you know, it's a 2010. I, I get what Americans are worried about and struggling with. And I think I take that to those fights about policy. You mentioned the suggestion to fly your kids out so that they could be part of events. What were some of the other reactions you got, even from your fellow colleagues, ones that you were close to, other Democratic women, about your family struggles? It's almost like they treated you as a special case or what your needs were were sort of unique. Yeah, it's. I think when I asked people about you know, for advice about how to navigate as a single mom, how did they take care of their kids when our schedule's unpredictable? Are there ways that we could make Congress work more efficiently and get more done by revisiting um, how we kind of travel and the schedule that we have? And one of the responses, very common responses was, well, you know, your situation is so unique. You're a single mom. You're the only single mom in Congress. Um, that part is true, but my, the situation unique part is false. There are about 10 million people raising children on their own in this country. And just as we've seen workplaces try to better accommodate people's balancing their work and their family, um, and that produces a more productive, better workplace, it would be the same thing for our government if Congress ran in a way that made it possible for different kinds of people with different kinds of life circumstances to serve, not just the retired and the rich. Well, let me go to caller Pat in Palo Alto. Hi, Pat. You're on. Hi. Thanks a lot. Um, my question borders on what, what Katie just was talking about. Um, it really stuck in my mind when they, they said she was a single mom with three, three children to raise. My husband and I raised two children together, and I know what a struggle it is. I'm just curious to know how she, how she manages. Do Does she have help with her children at home? Does she leave her children with someone when she's working in Washington? I, I'm just curious to know the nitty-gritty of how she does it. You did mention, Katie Porter, that you felt doomed on day one when you realized that there was no schedule necessarily that members of Congress would keep to. And the reality of how the absence of a schedule is a death knell for a single parent. 
I well, imagine that like, hasn't changed in Congress in terms of any more reliability with the schedule. Like a lot of parents, I use organization um, to try to balance and, and juggle all of the responsibilities I face. So in my case, that means things. And, I, and I've gotten better at, at this, by the way, as I've been in Congress longer. But I've really had to come up with it on my own because there hasn't been anyone else in my situation. But for example, it's things like um, pre-making the meal. So last night I sliced up the peppers and the onions and the I got all the ingredients out and I walked my kids through how to cook it. Um, and we'll see if it turns out tonight. I asked them to send me a picture if it was edible and they have a backup plan to um, go to In-N-Out Burger if they if they fail at making dinner. I do have a number of childcare providers um, who stay with the kids when I go to Washington. I live in California. That is, I come back every opportunity I can. I think seeing what's happening on the ground in California, um, talking to Californians. My kids go to California public school. My son's going to be applying to the California university system. Really keeps me grounded on what we are facing and what we need from Washington. So I'm very grateful to all of the neighbors and um, child care providers and to my kids who frankly step up and help a lot. Um, my middle son, Paul, we call him LB for laundry boy. He does all of the laundry. My daughter, Betsy, unloads the dishes washer. That's one of her responsibilities. My son Luke takes the garbage and recycling out. So we all pitch in and do it together, but it, it definitely takes a lot of hours in the day. And like most working Americans, and particularly those of young parents, I think you just kind of keep trying to put one foot in front of the other and make it to the end of the day and get up tomorrow with enough energy to keep going. You've also credited your staff at enabling you to be able to be do your job effectively given all the unique demands on your time, at least unique for Congress, not unique for America, as Pat is pointing out. There have also, though, been media reports right around the beginning of this year that you have mistreated staff. You've been called out by some previous staffers. I'm wondering how you respond to that. My staff is top-notch, and I am extremely grateful to them. There's every For every whiteboard moment that people see, for every successful media appearance or speech that I give, that is a team effort. And, and one of the things I do in the book very intentionally is devote an entire chapter to um, talking about how the staff and I work together. And I tell that story from multiple points of view, really giving my staffers their own voices in the story. So I consulted with them and, and wrote the chapter from a perspective of them sharing what it is like to do the high stakes, high pressure, incredibly important work of Congress. But my staff are incredible, exceptional public services, public servants. We run one of the best, most efficient constituent affairs operations, one of the strongest policy shops in the entire Congress. And we pride ourselves on the ability to get the job done for the American people. I have high expectations for myself, um, and I have similarly high expectations for others who are in public life, whether that's my colleagues, corporate executives who come to testify, or my staff. So when, when we fall short as a team, I think we have to be honest and direct. We have to talk exactly about what went wrong and how to fix it. So my view is that the stakes are high in this country for democracy, particularly in this moment, and we all want to be delivering our absolute best work. So do you feel like those comments, were those comments about wildly unrealistic expectations or anger and so on, were those made up or were those a moment of reflection for you about your own style? 
definitely over my four and a half years as I've had different um, different team members. I think from my first year um, was probably the bumpiest. It was the hardest for me. It was the rockiest for my staff. I think it was the rockiest for Congress. Remember, this was 2018 with Donald Trump, the longest government shutdown, the impeachment, all of these things that we struggled with. Um, I think we've definitely come up with ways to work the best together and most productively together, and I'm proud of that. More with Congressman Katie Porter after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour with Katie Porter, who represents the 45th Congressional District in Orange County. She serves on the Committee on Natural Resources, the Committee on Oversight and Reform, and the Joint Economic Committee. Porter has a new memoir, I Swear, Politics is Messier Than My Minivan, and she's here to talk about all the differences that she's trying to make in the House of Representatives as a single mom of three, attempting to challenge the complicated ways money, power, and class determine how Congress operates and the issues that are facing California and the U.S. You are also here, listeners, and you can ask Katie Porter your questions by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, giving us a call, 866-733-6786. And uh, Suzanne tweets, what is your position on gun control? What sort of legislation would impact gun violence in the U.S.? I appreciate Rep. Katie Porter's common sense approach. Gun violence prevention is going to require us to look at different types of gun violence that occurs. One of the biggest categories of gun violence is gun death by suicide. And for that, we have already started to make some progress through making more uh, better policies at the VA, for example, with regard to veterans asking the question about feeling suicidal if they own a gun. So I think with regard to suicide um, by gun, we're going to need to think about that as a public health issue and a mental health issue. And how can we put in place screening questions, red flag laws, safe storage training um, to keep people safe? When we think about gun violence prevention from the angle of mass shootings, that is where a ban on AR-15s would make an incredible difference. It would reduce the number of deaths. Um, it, same thing with a high-capacity magazine ban. All of those things would make it easier for law enforcement to respond and would reduce the, the mass shootings that we see. So I think we're going to need different policies depending on the kind of gun violence 
problem we're trying to solve or gun deaths that we're trying to solve. One of, there was a recent study that came out that found about 44% of gun owners who have children under 18 in the home do not store their gun locked um, and do not store the ammunition separately from the gun. So there's a lot of work we can do on safe storage, for instance, on thinking about how can we pass rules and regulations that when someone purchases a gun, we can validate and verify that they are educated about safe storage and have that kind of safe storage equipment. That's going to do a lot to reduce accidental gun deaths, for example, by children. So. I think we need more than one approach because we're losing folks to gun deaths for more than one cause. Um, but I do support a ban on AR-15s. I think the mass shooting um, is help the the pain of the mass shooting, the hardship, the tragedies of the mass shooting. I think is an opportunity for us to look at all of the different harms and opportunities we have to reduce gun deaths in this country. Well, Lois wants to know, Katie Porter's strong support of domestic policy is well documented. I'm less clear on her foreign policy stance, policies in the Middle East, China, Europe. How do her policies treat the enormous funds allotted annually to military budgets? Where can we, be, where can we read more about her policies on this topic? This is a terrific question. Thank you so much for giving me the chance to talk about it. Um, one of the things that I've brought to the foreign policy work that I've done is the same commitment to oversight that you have seen with regard to how I address issues like big, what big pharma is doing, what big banks are doing, what big oil is doing. The truth is we also have a, a big defense industry and it too gets its way in Washington through corporate PAC donations, through lobbyist donations. I don't take that money and I'm not bought and paid for. So last Congress um, and in the past, I have voted no on the National Defense um, Authorization Act um, because I think that budget does not reflect kind of what we actually need to keep our men and women safe who are serving us. I'll give you a great example. This last Congress, the Pentagon and the White House came to Congress and said, we need X dollars this is what the general said we needed. This is what the White House said we needed to keep our world secure. And the House Armed Services Committee went and added 10% to the tune of tens of billions of dollars to top, quote, top off that budget. I voted no because that is that is not about keeping our country safe. That is about lining the pockets of the defense industry. I've done a lot of work on oversight with regard to the, um, the United States nuclear legacy. For example, in the Marshall Islands, I have a particular interest in South China, um, the South China Sea, and the increasing contests that we're facing, how the United States can work more closely with Australia as our ally to guard against that increasing um, power from China. Recently made my first trip to Israel um, and then mm -hmm. also at Thanksgiving had the chance to visit um, six different countries and serve Thanksgiving meals to our troops, visiting Kuwait and Lebanon, um, among others, um, Iraq, and got a chance to see firsthand why it is really, really important that when we make policy in Washington, we take the time to talk to and learn from those who are on the ground trying to deliver American policy into people's lives. Well, let me go next to caller Cecil in Berkeley. Hi, Cecil. You're on. Yes, it's Cecile. Cecile. Um, Thanks, Cecile. Sure. Um, I uh, tuned in a little late, and I was just shocked at the difference in questioning a female congressperson from a male congressperson. And it felt like we were back in the 50s 
when women were asked questions that men are never asked Mm. about how they are fathering, how they are taking care of their children, how when they are away, what's happening to the kids. And I just found that so startling. Well, Cecile, I really really like your question because it's definitely something that I think about a lot. And yes, we also had a caller who called in asking you how you manage your household, Katie Porter. But in your case, your book really describes and wants to talk about those experiences because I think, if I'm understanding correctly, you're seeing the reality of that experience is badly needed in terms of being represented in Congress and that you feel like it is actually a big part of or informs how you legislate. So, yeah, would love to get your thoughts on Cecile's point because it's a valid one. Yeah. In my first congressional race in 2018, the most common question that I was asked I was at a five-way Democratic primary. I had a really tough race against a very um, entrenched Republican who had cruised to a 17-point victory two years before. The most common question I was asked was, what will happen to your kids if you win? Hmm. What will happen to them? I guess we'll, well celebrate, right? Yeah. I guess we'll celebrate. <laughs> I guess, you know, we'll, we'll con- I'll continue to be their mother or I'm not going to, I'm going to continue to be there for them and they're going to continue to be a wonderful family to me. Um, so I do think that, but those questions used to rub me the wrong way. And then I started to listen to kind of what was behind the questions. And it, it is sometimes coming from a place of sexism um, or sort of doubting women's ability to perform at the highest levels of government. Sometimes I hear those questions coming from other parents, from moms who say, I'm struggling. I I work 22 miles away and I can't get to childcare on time and I can't afford to, you know, the thought of trying to help my uh, get dinner on the table, the thought of trying to get all the forms filled out for summer camp is overwhelming to me as a working parent. It must, you know, what's it like for you? And so I think it's important to show people in the book that yes, single parents, yes, parents of young children can and must serve in our Congress, but that's also going to look a little bit different than how the job is traditionally done. Some of my colleagues go out after votes, they'll go out to dinner or go out to drink whiskey together. I go home to FaceTime my kids um, and to talk with them about how their day was and, and find out if they managed to to make dinner and, and figure out what I need to do for tomorrow to have them be successful in school. So. I think I try to be honest about it in part because I want to quiet those doubts that Cecile is absolutely right that people have. She's definitely right that that women in politics face different questions. I talk a little bit in the book, I swear, about how people think about my appearance and Mm -hmm. how they criticize it. I talk a little bit in the book about, and we talked a little bit in this interview, about how people think about women as leaders and women as bosses, right? The the kind of tired old trope that um, men have high expectations, but women are unreasonable. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's important to talk about why those are, are wrong concepts. And so in this book, one of the things I tried to do, you're absolutely right, is be honest about the challenges of being a single mom, not to not to turn people away from it, but to actually show that it is possible and it matters in how we make policy. It matters in the fights I take on. Um, it matters in how I see problems and it matters in how hard I fight to get solutions. Well, let me go to caller Hussein in Oakland. Hi, Hussein. You're on. Oh, hi. Hi. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, my question kind of builds up on uh, two previous questions, one uh, on Dianne Feinstein and 
you know, her reluctance to retire uh, at an earlier time. And then, you know, the thought that you're graduating to a safer seat. Um, so I think there's a lot of uh, problems in the sense that, you know, once you're in a safe seat, you you don't necessarily push the envelope for progressive values and you just kind of stay maybe longer than what should be. So what are the guiding principles that you'll employ to decide on, you know, when to continue on and when to, when to retire? Yeah, thank you for that question. I'm um, I'm 49 years old. I have served four and a half years in Congress. So I definitely look at my opportunity here in the Senate to have a runway to deliver for California, to learn more about the, what the state is facing, and to build power in Washington. I absolutely love campaigning, and one of the reasons that I want to be California's senator is so that I can help us win all of those tough races. I know people often think about California as, you know, it's, it's a blue state, it's a democratic state, and that's true at the aggregate, but I think coming from Orange County um, and having spent a lot of time campaigning in, in some of the other parts of California, we have tough races. And there, so I think my, my attraction to the Senate comes from the a wanting, actually, to be able to help more win those tough races. Um, I know how to do it. I love doing it. I've done it three times. Um, and I'm ready to help us do it again in every part and pocket in California. I think our goal has to be to deliver a durable majority. I think people are tired of winning and losing and winning and losing because it doesn't let us get the policies done that they care about, whether that's a ban on congressional stock trading or passing gun violence prevention. We need a leader in California who's going to be all in in every campaign. The only kind of campaigns I've ever had are tough ones, and I am absolutely ready and wanting to help in every tough campaign in California and around the country for years to come. We're talking with Orange County Congress member Katie Porter, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go next to Kristen in Sacramento. Hi, Kristen. Thanks for waiting. Thank you, and thank you so much for having this conversation. I appreciate um, Katie Porter sharing her um, time with us. Um, and I did also have kind of a follow-up to the earlier conversation, um, and based on what uh, Katie's response was to the last caller, um, definitely hear that you love campaigning, and we know that you're excellent at it. Does that mean you might be better with the Democratic National Committee and not in a Senate seat? California Senator... California's senator really matters in how Democrats craft their policies and their message. We have, you know, in this race, we are each going to have, you know, whomever wins this race is going to have a very large platform. And I think our ability to use that platform to not just push the uh, Democratic National Committee, not just um, kind of push the party internally, but also as senator to actually model how to communicate in a way that connects with voters and builds confidence in government. When I got to Congress, people didn't take these hearings sometimes very seriously. Um, when I brought the whiteboard to Congress, that was considered really revolutionary, innovative. Um, and so, you know, when I got to Congress, I was like, here are these five minutes that I get to question the most powerful people in America. Why are we not using that? And so I think that kind of leadership and willingness to rethink and push the institution as a senator um, can then help model for other people. You know, when I ran and I 
don't take corporate PAC money. Um, and yet I ran in Orange County and had all of the resources that I needed. I mentioned I was the top fundraiser in the House of Representatives among Democrats last Congress. And I did that without taking corporate PAC money. And you often hear Democrats can't compete unless they're taking money from big oil or big tech and, and from corporations. Um, and that's not true. And so I think as Senator, one of the things I can show is how you can be a progressive and a fighter standing up to corporate power and still win in tough purple areas like Orange County. And I want to model that in the in the Senate for, for other California candidates and for candidates around the country. We do hear a lot that Democrats are bad at messaging. And you also point out how often you hear it. You say, if you had a dollar for every time a constituent said this to you, you could afford to donate the proceeds of your book to charity. But you also do say that Dems are bad at messaging, that they lack confidence in the things that they're saying. What do you think they need to do, Democrats need to do to be better at it? What would you say is the single biggest issue they face? Democrats need to be much more comfortable talking about the economy and about economic issues. And we need, we are the party that delivers uh, lower unemployment, better job growth, fairer taxes. And so we need to be really, really comfortable talking about this. I think the other thing that Democrats need to do is not be afraid to kind of reveal to people that sometimes the problem is us. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Last Congress, I fought really hard to try to pass a ban on congressional stock training, on Congress members being mm -hmm. able to trade stock. And we were not able to get that over the finish line into law. And Democrats were in control in the Senate. Democrats were in control in the House. And President Biden was in the White House. We cannot blame that on Republicans, even if there's so much else that we can blame Republicans for. We have to be willing to think about how to hold our own party to better standards. And so I think that is something that that messaging can be part of how we do this. And so I, I try to just be very, very direct when somebody asks me, you know, why can't we pass gun violence prevention in Congress? The answer is we don't have enough people who will vote for it. There are a lot of Republicans who refuse to vote for gun violence prevention, refuse to address mass shootings, and those folks are getting reelected to the U.S. Congress. And so it's, it's actually not complicated. It's just we simply don't have the, the right folks in the, in the organization to deliver what Americans need. Well, you're getting a couple of political or campaign-related questions from our audience. Dan writes, I want to ask Rep. Porter how she and Adam Schiff can have a civil, informative campaign for the Senate. This could be very important to raise the level of political dialogue and move on from the negative and deceptive tactics of many recent campaigns. Barb writes, I'm truly torn listening to Katie. I so want her to be our senator, but I adore Barbara Lee. Can Katie describe the differences between her and Barbara Oof, what will this race look like? And how would you respond to those questions? This Senate race is an incredible opportunity for California to have a conversation about what we want from our next senator. What kinds of experiences do we want them to have? What kinds of fights do we want them to take on? What kinds of political skills do we want them to have? And I think I have some very unique things to offer in terms of my ability to win tough races, in terms of my uh, refusal of corporate PAC donations. Um, and I think in terms of the way I think about oversight as a really important tool to improve people's lives, to make government work better. Both Barbara Lee and Adam Schiff are my colleagues um, in the California um, House of Representatives. They're part of the California delegation. And I admire different things about both of their work. 
if I am very committed to doing this race in a way that boosts turnout in California, that helps engage more voters, um, and that draws people into a meaningful debate about what California needs from its next senator. We've had a lot of appointments from our governor in recent political history. Um, he appointed Sec uh, Senator Padilla. He appointed the Attorney General, Rob Bonta. He appointed the Secretary of State, Shirley Weber. So I think this is a great opportunity for Californians to make their own decision about who they want to represent them. And this is going to be a fun and spirited campaign. It's going to do a lot, if we do it right, to really um, fire people up for this 2024 election. Katie Porter wants to be California's next senator. Right now, she's Orange County Congress member representing the 45th Congressional District. Her new memoir is I Swear Politics is Messier Than My Minivan. Thank you so much for being with us and answering our listeners' questions. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for being part of the conversation. Susie Britton for producing the segment. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.